This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, Blue Fish. Okay, that's this genius. One has a little star. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. So I go ahead and bring up our next speaker, Diane Bryant of Intel. So a lot of my interviews I start by saying take it from the top. Take it from the top. Take it from the top. And in your case, you run, you're senior vice president at Intel, you run the data center group. $14 billion in revenue last year. Uh, I think the operating margin was 50%, which by my count makes it Intel's most profitable business unit. Um, we'll get to some of the particularities of that a little bit later. But what encompasses the data center group? What is in your portfolio of responsibilities? How is it changing? Yeah, how's it changing is the fun part of it. So what I'm responsible for is all of the products and technologies that go into servers, storage, and network, independent of who is actually deploying that infrastructure into a data center and manage it. So it could be enterprise IT, it could be the big public cloud service providers like Amazons and Googles, uh, it could be the telcos, uh, or it could be government and academia with high-performance computing. So that's what I'm responsible for. Um, it, to your question on how is it changing, it is a period of uh, tremendous transformation for the data center world, the world of infrastructure. Just the fundamental way that information and communication technology is being deployed and being consumed uh, through cloud computing. So it's a very, it's a transformational time for our industry and uh, very disruptive, so that makes it exciting. Right, and so the way I like to describe this is, is very often, you know, Intel gets a lot of knocks for not having much of a presence, say, in mobile, for instance. Mm -hmm. But um, when you fire up an app on your phone, more than likely it's doing what? It's connecting to an Intel server running through uh, Intel storage. It's, um, yeah, we have a, a very nice share of the server market overall. And so all of those services that you're accessing through your device, all those connections you're making is going to a data center with Intel architecture. Uh -huh. Interesting. So 
um, so how is it changing? You mentioned storage yeah. and networking, which was a surprise to me. Well, well it's, it's changing dramatically. So just this fundamental move to cloud computing, so the move to the next big computer architecture. So you can go back, you know, there was the mainframe, and then client servers, and then web-based computing, and now cloud. And that's a, a tremendous change in the fundamental architecture of the data center. Uh, and so it, it forces everyone to stand back and say, what is the way we're going to architect server storage and network in order to deliver these services at scale? Uh, and, and that drives change in everything. You see in traditional ISVs becoming cloud service providers. You see OEMs diversifying tremendously. Uh, when you look at our business, just go back five years ago, 75% of all servers were sold by three OEMs, HP, Dell, and IBM. OEM, original equipment manufacturer. Original equipment manufacturer. <clears throat> where, yeah, so three, HP, Dell, and IBM, they sold 75% of all servers. Fast forward five years, it now takes 10 original equipment manufacturers, 10, 10 to get to 75% of the market. And Even it more is. To Pardon me? Even more to change the light bulb. Even so, so it sounds like a lot of the change yeah. is happening on the customer side, who those chips are being sold to, who's making the gear. Is it changing the chip architecture that much? Is it changing what you guys produce or just who you sell it to? Sure, no, it, it changes what we do as well. So for instance, if you're deploying a single application at scale, so you know, take Amazon, they can have a single application running across thousands of servers. You can now and afford to and want to deliver a targeted, optimized, accelerated solution for that single application. Because if you're in the business of delivering services, your whole game is how can I get the maximum performance out of my data center that I can at the absolute lowest cost of operation. That's your competitive advantage. And so if you're running a single application across thousands of servers, you want to optimize and maximize the performance at the lowest cost. So Which we'll optimize the, the, the processes for them. Of the world, the Googles of Facebooks, they're actually building their own servers in many cases because they, they need every uh, watt of power, they need every ounce of performance. They can save on the average. So they don't actually build their own servers, but they'll specify their servers, absolutely, because they know they know their workload better than anybody, and so they can specify what is the hardware infrastructure that's going to give them the best results. We turn around and we say, what is that application? Let us optimize our products, our microprocessors, and all the associated components for that particular workload for you. And so we've you know, have over 40 now custom processors that we're shipping. Over half of our volume this year into the cloud service provider market will be custom CPUs, customized for a given in end user. For a given customer. So yes. the customer could be, say, an Amazon Web Services yes. or Facebook. Exactly, or exactly those guys. We've already announced, um, you know, Microsoft has a custom solution for big data analytics. Um, Amazon has a custom solution for their new um, C4 instance. So. So this part of the business um, yeah. is doing very well for Intel. You know, a lot has changed, as you mentioned, but Intel has come out of all that change even stronger, you know, perhaps than it was even five or ten years ago where AMD was stronger in servers. We hear a lot of talk about ARM in servers, but you guys still have, you know, the lion's share of the data center business. Like 90, 95%. Looking at Intel as a whole, does it ever get tiring that, you know, PCs aren't growing? Mobile's a real struggle. You guys are kind of subsidizing the rest of that huge company. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not subsidizing the PC, the PC business. That's still the largest business inside of Intel's the PC business. We're the second largest business. But it is a huge growth opportunity. And um, 
we've said over and over again, if you can make technology easier and cheaper to deploy, people will deploy more technology. It's the, we call it, it's Jevon's paradox, right? So Jevon says if you make a resource more efficient, the demand for that resource doesn't actually decline, it actually increases. And we've seen that over and over again, and cloud computing is the next one. Cloud computing makes the deployment and the consumption of infrastructure so much more efficient, it's driving a huge growth. And that's the results that you uh, noted in the, the returns last so year. So if you have roughly 90, 95% market share in, say, servers, for instance, where do you grow? Well, that's the part about the disruption that's so fun, right? It, it's, um, you know, in a period of transformation, you can either be the disrupted or the disruptor. We'd all prefer to be the disruptor. And a place where we continue to disrupt is in the network. So if you look at the network, the telco industry is in a, a real pickle because they're having to support ever-growing data traffic. There's a limit on what a consumer is willing to pay for that data traffic. And the cost of deploying that capital cost and operational cost of those traditional proprietary boxes, switches, routers, load balancers, firewalls, all that stuff, is just prohibitive. And so with the industry, back in 2011, we partnered with British Telecom, and we convinced them in their lab that you can run a network workload on Intel architecture, on a standard high-volume server workload. And that was 2011. They formed with their community uh, a standards body around Etsy. The first commercial deployments, production deployments of network function virtualization or software-defined network. Oh, don't say, oh boy, it's exciting. I know, I know, I know. It's very, <laughs> very exciting. I have to, that, I have but to, the first deployment, to say API and SDK. I think I, there's I no chance we're going to get him to that. say server-defined so, network. But I didn't mean to say NFB and SDK. Let, you let say network. So let that me. move started last year. And so the entire telco industry is now going to move off of proprietary fixed-function boxes onto standard high-volume servers to get the volume economics to get the utilization of virtualization and to get cloud computing. So let me stop you there yeah. and let's say what is software-defined networking and what is network function virtualization. SDN, I get. NFV makes my head spin a little bit, even me. I think so it explain means it. kids aren't supposed to watch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it means kids exactly. aren't supposed to watch. Yeah. The network function virtualization says that today you buy a box called a load balancer. Let's just say today you went out and you bought a box called a load balancer. Sure. And that box has a is a proprietary hardware with a proprietary operating system running that application called load balancer. Right? And that's a proprietary fixed function system. Yep. Network function virtualization does, does one thing. And it's expensive and it's, it's inflexible. And you have to have a talent that understands that box to manage that box. So high operational cost, high capital cost. Network function virtualization says that load balancer, that application at the top, is nothing more than an application. And you can take that application, it just, it's software. Yeah. You so like the word software better than application? Software. Okay, software. And you can run that software application on a standard high volume server. Standard box with an Intel chip in it. A standard box with an Intel chip in it. And, and of course, we make, back to your point, we make unique investments to make sure that that app runs well. Um, but that is a market that we're growing in. It's a, we assess it at about a $17 billion silicon opportunity for us. We're a 7.5% share of that market today, up from 4.5% the year before. Um, but it's a tremendous opportunity, and we see the industry, AT&T, Telefonica, British Teleco, they're all moving in that direction, it's, and it's a huge capital spend for them. Very interesting. So that sounds like That's a lot exciting. of, lot of, lot of, lot of lot is yeah. going to be changing in the data center. And you're also talking, Intel is also kind of talking about kind of re-architecting how data centers are built. Disaggregated is the word that comes, what it means kind yes. of taking the, the established stack 
Yes. That, you know, network and storage and compute yeah. and blowing them apart. And blowing apart. And that's, you know, at the root of cloud computing, so you think about cloud computing, this next wave of more efficient uh, delivery of services, um, it has gone very, very rapidly mainstream because it is such a compelling value proposition to an end user, to an IT guy, and to an app developer. In fact, um, it was just two and a half years ago, Wakefield Research did a survey of a thousand Americans, and 51% of them believed that the weather could interfere with cloud computing. <laughs> 51%—and you know, maybe it's just Americans, actually. You know, this, but. Um, and now you fast forward two and a half years, and cloud computing has gone from obscure to mainstream. mainstream so right? if you built more of your cloud computing resources in California, would that help the drought at all? Or? <laughs> no? Okay. It, it, cloud computing can help everything. But to your point, so, so cloud computing, it is a, a step function change, and we're doing things um, beyond the silicon. To stand back and say, if you were to build a greenfield data center for cloud computing, how would you build it? And if you're building at scale, so you have one application running across many different servers, how would you build it differently? And um, you would go about it differently. So rack scale architecture is our reference design that says, blow up the, the rack, blow up the servers, the and just have that are there now. the racks that are there now. Instead of having all these independent servers, blow it up and have pools of compute, pools of storage, pools of network, and let the application dynamically pull together those blocks that it needs based on the demands of the application. So you can run the data center instead of when I was Intel CIO for four years. Um, if you had a server running at double-digit utilization, you were pretty proud of yourself. Um, and now, if you look at the hyperscale data centers, they're running at 90%, 90% utilization. And, and so you can I, run at much higher utilization. And the way I usually explain utilization, which is, is pretty simple, it's a chip that's you know using about half of its brain, standing exactly. around doing this a lot. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so in a traditional enterprise data center that is not virtualized and automated in cloud computing, you'll find servers sitting around running about 5 to 10 percent of the time. And that's a huge capital waste and it's a huge operational waste with your power comment. Um, one area that Intel has also been taking the lead in and, and you've been involved in and the company as a whole is this initiative to get more women and minorities into technology. And, you know, Intel made big headlines at CES this year when, you know, Brian, the CEO, stood up and said, we're going to, you know, spend $300 million to, to, to really change our practices, change the industry. It doesn't necessarily seem like just a problem that money can solve. What, what can you, what, what does investment bring and what's needed beyond investment? So I am, as a woman in technology, I'm an engineer, I have my um, BSWA degree, so this is an area that's uh, very near and dear to my heart. Um, yay, BSWs. Um, so, uh, so yeah, when, when Brian, when BK made that announcement, it's, um, it's a great statement. So we've said that we are going to be at market parity. Our representation inside the company is going to be at parity with the market for women and, and minorities by 2020. It is $300 million we're investing, and you're right, that it isn't just a money problem, but if you look at the problem with women in technology, in the U.S., 24% of the STEM population, science and technology population, is women, right? That's, that's horrible when women make up half of the workforce. So, and it's horrible when you think about what a financially rewarding uh, career you can have in technology. It's nine of the top ten jobs out of college, paying jobs out of college, are in engineering and, and in technology. 
So um, we've got to boost that number. So it's a pipeline problem. It's, it's a multi-phase problem. And you've got K through 12, why aren't more girls sticking with sciences? Then you got college, why can't we get more women into engineering and then get them out, actually graduating? And then you've got a retention problem. Once they're in the workforce, what do you do to keep them there? So you have to solve all three pieces of the pipeline because it's leaky all the way across, right? The money can help in the K through 12, so we're deploying more um, curriculum and training teachers on how to teach technology in the classroom, making it more exciting. Um, and, and so that's one investment. Another investment is in the college side, so scholarships, more scholarships, internships, mentoring, so keeping the women and minorities in once they're in. And then the last phase is once women are in the workforce, keep them in the workforce, keep them excited about coming to work every day. And I think that goes to, more than anything, what each individual corporation does in order to attract and retain their population. And you've been at Intel a really long time, since 19 years. How has Holy it cow. evolved? What was it like uh, as a woman when you entered there? <laughs> and what is it like today? How has it evolved as a place for women to work? Okay, so it has evolved dramatically, thank God. We'll start there. So, um, so I joined in the 80s, and in the 80s, anybody that was in Silicon Valley in the 80s, it was the, the Wild West era. It was the cowboy era. Um, I, 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 joined, um, I joined Intel, and in the first month, the one thing that I learned was to swear like a sailor. And so I was in a meeting, and um, as a 23-year-old you know, engineer, I was in a meeting, and it's all men, of course, and some guy's talking, and he throws out a curse word, and he stops, and he turns to me and says, oh, I'm sorry. And it was all eyes then went to me with that look of, oh, crap, like, what a party pooper. The whole dynamic now has changed because she's here. So it was that horrible, oh, dear moment, and I turned bright red and panicked, and I screamed out, no effing problem. And, um, <laughs> and then I frequently and randomly swore for the next few years <laughs> just to try to get everybody comfortable that it was okay. I wasn't pooping on the party. You know, everything was going to be just fine. Um, so those days, um, those were interesting, tough days, and um, it did change dramatically, and I think it changed dramatically, not just at Intel, but the entire industry in the early 2000s, when globalization hit, and there was this realization that this cultural norm is not the norm around the world, and um, it's got to change. And our COO at the time, Paolo Dolini, who was then CEO, he just put his foot down and said, this behavior is going to change. You know, cursing was no longer allowed. HR would come knock on your door if there was any uh, rumblings. And it, it was a completely different, it, it completely toggled dramatically, dramatically. And now we're in the third era where it's not just, you know, behaving and being, being kind to your neighbor, but um, really changing the workforce. And our compensation is tied out on, um, on the uh, initiative for 2020. So, you, so we get paid based on the representation of the workforce. You drop an F-bomb, you lose a few bucks. You drop an F-bomb, you lose a few bucks? No, you're, oh, you're I, compensation, yeah, you're yeah, compensation. Yeah, no, the compensation is not on cursing. The compensation is on creating oh. a diverse workforce, okay. which you're right. They two maybe go hand cursing. in hand. There's not like <laughs> a big curse jar inside Intel. Yeah, so That'd be great. The compensation is based on reaching parity. So we have very clear goals and um, a, uh, recruiting and then retaining and then promoting um, at parity with the market. What do you think is missed in the dialogue? Because it feels like everyone's saying roughly the same things. You know, we don't have enough 
women staying, young girls staying interested, getting interested in technology. We don't have them staying interested in middle school. They're not majoring at it in college. You know, we, yeah, we we're hear all saying the same. Because the, the problem is clear. And you're right. The first step, though, in solving the problem is admitting you have a problem and, and, and getting to root cause of what the problem is. One interesting um, point is if you, so I said U.S., 24% of STEM is women. Go to the U.K., it's 13%. It's horrific. Go to China. Guess what China is? 40%. 40% of the STEM population is women. So you ask yourself, why? <laughs> and it's like, well, there's one good thing about the Communist Party. There's an expectation that everybody contributes on par. There's an expectation that everyone is equal and you will pull your weight and contribute to the state on par, independent of gender. They have the Chinese proverb of women hold up half the sky. And so the key word there, I think, is expectation. There's an expectation, and in, in our culture, there is not that expectation. If you walk into any high school uh, physics class and ask the two girls that are there why they're there, and they'll say it's because they love science. You ask the 28 boys why they're there, and they're, they'll say, because my mom and dad said I had to take it. I hate this class. I don't want to be here, but my mom and dad expect me to take it. So, so why don't we expect? What worked for yes. you? Why what, am I here? You're 30 years into Intel. Yep. And... That's the only place you've ever worked, and you're an engineer. You have four I'm, patents. I do have four patents. Thank you for... I, I studied your bio closely. <laughs> so what worked for you? Um, so what worked for me? Well, I got into engineering accidentally, um, so probably that's one thing that worked. I didn't know any engineers. I, I My dad um, declared that at 18, you're on your own because you're an adult, so I turned 18 four, weeks, four months before graduation from high school. So I was on, on my own before graduating from high school, um, all my friends were going off to fancy universities, and I didn't have any money, so I went to a local community college, because they were free back then, 30 years ago, and the guy sitting next to me in Calculus 2 said, hey, what's your major? Because I think he might, she wanted to go out, but you know, so hey, what's your major? And, um, and I said, I didn't have a major declared, and he said, you should be an engineer. It's the most money you can make with just a bachelor's degree, 30,000 bucks. And I was like, holy cow, I went down to the counselor's office, Converted my major to engineering, transferred to UC Davis, got a degree, and went to Intel, and I've been there for 30 years. So, <laughs> well, for, but, but you know, it is, it is funny. I mean, I was motivated by money. That's horrible. I've stayed in engineering, and I've stayed at Intel because, number one, it is a very rewarding, fast-paced, fun, challenging career. And number two, Intel is an incredibly fair environment, and fair is important. You want to know that if you're going to bust your butt, you're going to get recognized and compensated as you should. Did that guy get your phone number? Yeah. <laughs> I had to ask. I, I had to ask. That's great. That's great. Still seems like you may have gotten more out you of the, the better. <laughs> Thank you. I, I agree. Yeah. God knows where he is now. So, short of communism as an answer to, well, which I'm sure know, is not. I have thought that one through, though. I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Short of communism, it is expectations. What What do you see? Because obviously, you know, in investing and being such a leader in this. Intel seeing some of the early what's working, what's not. What yeah. is actually working? Okay, what? so so what works is um, so there's like you say there's a few nuggets you just know. In 2004, when I became vice president, the, uh, vice presidents at Intel, six percent were women. Today, it is 25 percent. We're on par with the market. How we got from six percent to 25 percent was a program called advocacy sponsorship. Every one of the women vice presidents had to take on. Um, at least one or two high-performing other women and advocate for them because there's multiple studies that say women are mentored, men are sponsored. 
right? A sponsor is very different. It's an active role of advocating for the person. So when that next big job comes up, someone's saying, hey, why don't you take Eric? Here's you know, the great attributes of Eric. And that, that moved the needle. It forces the conversation of, hey, how come you aren't giving you know, Wendy this job? She's, she's, I'm her advocate. I'm in there pitching for her. Uh, and that, that moved the needle. So advocacy, sponsorship, I've always had a, throughout my whole career, I've had sponsors, people that were in there, you know, like going, hey, we think Diane can do this. Uh, it makes a difference. They were all men, of course, but uh, <laughs> it worked. This is, this is great. I want to yeah. touch on something with China, yeah. um, back to more, uh, a little bit business here, because yep. I think there's, I've been reading lately, there's kind of a long-term threat that, you know, to some of Intel's business. Um, China wants, as I understand it, and you'll correct me if I mangle this a little bit, China wants to build its own domestic data center hardware business on open, open power, the IBM, originally the IBM power pro, uh, architecture, and uh, now open source. And, uh, and, and a lot of other things. What Does that represent a threat to Intel? So, so start with China in, in general. So China, first of all, it is a huge and exciting geography. It's, it's fabulous. Yeah. It is, it's 43% of the growth of ICT was in China last year. 43% of the worldwide ICT growth came I from keep, China. I keep reading a figure, 23 billion worth of servers were imported there last year. It's, I don't have the dollarized number, but I wouldn't be surprised. It's huge. They spent, they spent $435 billion on ICT in general, so that, yeah. that works out pretty well. So it's a wonderful market, high growth market. Um, if you, you stand back and you say, well, what does China want, right? Their, their motives, their motivations, their objectives are very, very clear. They want three things. One is they want to make sure that the infrastructure they deploy locally, they know is secure, right? Edward Snowden. A little, a little, little, yeah, a little bit of Snowden, actually, yes. <laughs> a little bit of Snowden, yeah. Dot, dot, so, yeah, dot, dot, dot. Um, they want, um, they want to, they want to use technology to fuel their own local uh, economy. So they have the new normal that the premier just came out with. The new normal is 7% GDP growth. Part of the new normal says we want to change made in China for being a statement on quantity to a statement on quality. And we want to do it through the use of technology. So that's their second objective. And then number third objective is they want to be seen as an innovative worldwide provider of technology. So if those are your three objectives, they're going to look at every single option, every single means of achieving those three objectives. We clearly believe we can meet all three of those objectives better than any other architecture. Uh, we are, we just had an announcement two weeks ago with the Xinhua University, which is the number one university in China that we are collaborating with them to take their local innovations, because they're motivated by their local innovations, and our uh, process technology and innovations, and marry them together to give them a solution that's indigenous um, for their, their needs and their environment. So we're working on that. We have full faith that we'll be successful. If you want to be a worldwide provider of technology, right? You, if they want to go outside of China and sell their technology worldwide, you need to do it on the platform that is prolific, which, back to your point, it's Intel architecture. So I, although they're looking at power, they have the China Power Initiative, they're going to have a very hard time shipping a power platform when power is now less than 1% of all servers shipped are power. You're going to have a very hard time being a worldwide provider of technology when that platform is not in the document. No one will want to buy it because it's not in the mainstream. No one, and you won't have, yeah, you won't have the, they, well, so today there isn't even an ecosystem around open power. I think it's, I think it's, uh, fun that, um, that IBM decided to do open power. When that was announced in, in 2013, I got a call from 
an executive of the prior Sun, and he said, gee, Diane, looks like they didn't read the case study on OpenSpark from 2005 <laughs> and how much that helped the Spark architecture back then. Not. Um, and no so, one remembers that now. <laughs> isn't that funny? Yeah, OpenSpark, and so now it's open power. So when your architecture is declining and you have a software and services business dependent upon that architecture, what do you do? You give it away and you hope, you know, hope something happens. So, um, so we're confident that we're going to continue to be a strong provider to China. Um, and their motivations are clear and their motivations are no different than any other country. What other country wouldn't want to be a worldwide provider of technology and know that their own infrastructure is secure? Um, we think we can meet those Great. needs. We have time for some questions. I know this audience is going to have some for Diane. Do we have any? Come on, anybody? While I'm waiting for somebody to formulate a question, I'm going to formulate another one for you. Okay. Uh, and that is about the Tianhe 2 supercomputer, Department of Commerce. Yeah, yeah, so the Department of Commerce. <laughs> what happened? Let's yeah, start there. yeah what happened? I, 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 so I have more questions than answers this on that one. This is a Chinese supercomputer. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, so it starts with the Department, U.S. Department of Commerce has a denied entities list. Entities go on and off that list based on their own assessment of the risk of that entity. Um, back in February, four China entities were put on that list. Uh, their supercomputers were put on that list. Um, those um, supercomputers run on Intel architecture, yeah. Intel Xeon and Xeon 5 processors, one as you would imagine. One of to be the world's most powerful One is the number one supercomputer, Tianhe 1A and 2, um, so they're on the list. We, um, the process is, once it's on the list, and, and we weren't singled out, it was, it's standard Intel products, first of all, I'll say, there's nothing special, special about the products we were shipping into Tianhe 1 and 2. Um, and the process is that you apply for an export license once you're on the list. So we applied for an export license. The export license was denied. So um, we now sit and wait and uh, wait for the entities to go off the list and come on the list and um, the whole political thing knows. I will say just those four entities, the revenue impact to us is immeasurable. It's, it's nothing in... Um, you know, so we continue to do business in China, and, the, and we adhere to all the laws and all the countries that we do business in, of course, including the United States. So we will adhere to the denied entities list and wait and see what happens. I'm curious what you thought, and I wonder if Ina, Ina actually, and I talked about this quite a bit, um, about Moore's Law and yes. the piece that I wrote last week. Yes. Uh, can, you, can you get past... Uh, you know, it is so funny. So I did read your piece. It was very well written. Um, yes. Uh, did you read the one 10 years ago where he said... And I said read exactly 10 the same. years ago. Yeah. So 10 years ago, he said that Moore's Law ago. was dead. I did. And ten, totally fast forward 10 years, and you're asking me how Moore's Law is doing. Am I wrong And again? you're not going to say it's... Uh, yeah, you, you're not going to again say it's going to die. So, um, so yeah, Moore's Law... Yesterday, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Moore's Law, which is a, a big deal for Intel. If you If you think about... Um, what Moore's Law brings, it brings incredibly efficient computing. So um, over the past 10 years, the cost of servers have come down by 40%. The cost of storage has come down 90%. So Moore's Law says every generation I give you more and more at lower cost, lower power. I mean, it's a wonderful um, economic model for that our industry has thrived on. Uh, and everyone always says, you know, it's, it's, it's over, you know, it's more has got to end. Well, because there's the always these physics limits of, you know, literally you're getting to, you know, 
small at atomic units. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's what makes it exciting. That's why Intel engineers come to work every day. So Moore's Law will die when Intel engineers stop innovating. That's the answer to your question. And I'm not going to bet on Intel engineers stopping the innovation cycle. So if you look over the past 30 years that I've been at Intel, it has always been hard. That's why 10 years ago you predicted it was dead, because it was hard 10 years ago. So why would it be easy now? It's always hard. And so you always have to be innovating and inventing. We went from simple scaling of the transistors, so just physically making them smaller. We went to new process technologies, so how to, how to actually process the wafers. We've gone to new material stacks that allow greater, um, greater density. We've now gone to new structures, 3D FinFET, which we launched three and a half years ago. So you start going up. The innovation will continue. Who knows what's next? But there is, there is no end to Moore's Law. Don't you dare write it. I already did. Twice. <laughs> so I don't know if there's another one. If not, I have one more. But let's see. Are there any other questions out there? I think we it have looks one. Like, oh, excellent. Yes. Yeah, you. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Hi. Thanks so much for the comments. It's been an interesting conversation. So I really liked your comments about um, sponsorship versus mentorship. I think that's a great way to frame it. I mean, I would love to be a, a woman in middle school right now because I think the debate is finally front and center about expectations, but I'm wondering what you're seeing that's either effective or ineffective for women in technology now that perhaps aren't in engineering roles. Because I think that um, if you're a woman in an engineering role right now in, in the Bay Area, you're probably you know, in pretty high demand or in da data science. But if you're in legal or finance or operations or, or marketing, how do you think that the industry is doing keeping those women engaged in, in the technology industry? Well, I think the industry itself is incredibly engaging. I think the industry itself, the pace of innovation, the opportunities are, are immense. And, um, and I also think that there's a spotlight now on the tech industry through you know, various events that have occurred on the fact that it, it doesn't have a sufficient representation of women. I mean, it is a crime that we are so underrepresented in this one industry when the industry provides so much opportunity. So I think there's a spotlight on it which tends to um, draw people like Intel into pulling in uh, a broader population. And it's not, when we say women in tech is 25%, it's just not technical women. It's women in the technology industry. It's finance, it's HR, it's legal. Um, so I would expect there's going to be a real pull as everyone tries to hit their uh, market representation numbers. And, and the available pool of engineers and, and data scientists and the technical side is limited. So um, if you're a uh, if you're in legal or HR or finance or IT um, in one of the non-technical roles, I would imagine the, the demand for you in the tech industry is going to increase. Yeah, it certainly will for us as we all want to get our bonuses. And uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Did we have another question? I wasn't sure. It's hard to see. Yeah, it's hard to see. Huh? Did you have one? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so we've talked about women in technology and sort of, you know, growing the ranks at the bottom. What about at the top? Do you think the next CEO of Intel will be a woman? And is that something <laughs> you'd like to see for yourself? I would love to see a, a woman CEO at Intel. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, almost a decade now, I was uh, doing an all-women's panel at a women, Intel Women's Forum. And someone in the audience said to the panel, would you want to be CEO? And one by one, down the line, every single woman said no, said 
no, I don't think I'm qualified, no, I think the job would be too stressful, no, I have three children, I don't, and you could just feel the energy getting sucked out of the room, and it was so depressing, so finally I just said, okay, I'll do it, you just like, like just in this, you know, someone has got to do it. So fast forward 10 years, I do think the pipeline uh, for women in the senior ranks, uh, at least I would hope, would be much stronger. Um, as far as far as me, I think I have a, a pretty big job right now running the data center business. Our CEO is just new in, in relatively new in his position. He's been CEO now for two years, and at Intel, the CEO job is about a, an eight-year stint. He's doing a fabulous job as represented, I hope he's watching, as represented by our stock. So our stock has gone up 50% since he uh, took the CEO reign, and so we all love him for that. Uh, so five years from now, ask me... Uh, <laughs> so your answer hasn't changed or has it, or are you, is that a no answer? I am doing my job and he is doing his job okay. and we're all driving success for the company, okay. so loving Great. it. Great. I think that's it, unless we have a question. Ah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you so much.